Andy, my dude, have you heard of the magical website builder known as Squarespace? Ugh, not another Squarespace ad. I feel like every podcast is sponsored by them. <laughs> hey, 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 don't knock it till you try it. Yes, okay, it is overhyped. But actually, it lives up to the hype. Squarespace is like a website fairy godmother. With a click of a button, your site transforms into a beautiful masterpiece. A website fairy godmother? That sounds interesting. What makes it so magical? Well, for starters, those slick templates make anyone look like a professional web designer. Pick one, customize the colors and fonts to match your brand, and voila. Plus, the drag-and-drop fluid engine is so easy, your grandma could build a site on Squarespace. Well, she did knit me a lovely scarf last Christmas. Maybe website design is next. Exactly. And when you're ready to sell your Nana's handmade scarves online, Squarespace has built-in e-commerce. Add a store with one click. Get flexible payment options. Then watch those sales roll in. And when she wants to teach others her steezy scarf skills, Squarespace's new courses feature is just the ticket. Nana can set up her curriculum and enrollments and payments in a snap and become the next e-knitting influencer. Wow, you really sold me with the grandma angle. Sign me up for that free try. Just go to thenextreel.com slash Squarespace and transform your site into a beautiful Squarespace masterpiece. Well, thanks, Pete. Even though it's overhyped, Squarespace actually sounds perfect for Nana's site's needs. Appreciate the warning on the ads, though. I'll brace myself next time I listen to a podcast. Anytime. Let me know if you need any help getting that site up and running. Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to support our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. Welcome to a very special episode of the Film Board Movie Conversation Podcast about the latest releases that you've seen and want to talk about. I'm Pete Wright, and I'm here with Justin Yeager, and we've been talking about the latest work of Aaron Sorkin and wondering just a little bit why it seems to be that we're the only ones loving the work of the writer-director in his efforts to catalog a very special week in being the Ricardos. Why is this coming out now? Lucille Ball's a threat to the American way of life. 
Does the FBI have any case against Lucy? I need you to help me save my marriage. How many times I gotta explain where I was and what I was doing? You gotta explain. Are you being funny right now? I'm Lucille Ball. When I'm being funny, you'll know. This is getting out of hand. Madness. Have you been cheating on me? The story's made up. If they boo me? If they boo you, we're done. JJ. Hi. Why are we on an island? Are we Does really it feel though? That way? I think I don't I think know we're we on are. a Discord island because we've seen you there's think? some oh, there's some nominations coming out for this thing. God, but are they bitter nominations? Are they <laughs> Explain that. Why would you say bitter? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I um I I I think you might be right. I think you okay. might be right that we Good. we are uh, a part of a um uh, of. Uh, a, there is a part of our community that doesn't love this movie as much right. as I walked away loving this movie. And mm. I ha- I was really surprised. The thing that I have heard uh, more often from more than one person is that I'm not really interested in the Lucille Ball movie. But is this a Lucille Ball movie? Well, this is that's the beauty of Sorkin here, right? I mean, it Lucille Lucy Lucille Ball is the is the vehicle, and you know, yeah. I guess you know, there's other Lucy biopics out there that maybe you want to avoid, but the, if you like Sorkin and 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 I'm going to contend as we talk about this that this is one of the best. Uh, I had to go through all of the movies again to see where it stacked up for me. And I, this is like my second favorite Sorkin of all time and, and, and fights for Moneyball at the top because it is not only, uh, you know, all the things that you might love about Aaron Sorkin, but there's so much more to this. There are layers. There is so much more than the Lucille Ball story here. It's, it's a really, really solid film. The story covers a week in the world of Lucy and Desi, leading to a live taping of I Love Lucy in 1953. Along the way, the film covers their rocky relationship as a husband and wife. First, the accusation of uh, Ball's participation in the Communist Party and and calls to testify uh, before McCarthy. And, And it's all wrapped up in a bow that leads to a commitment to have a baby on network television, all in a week's work, right? That's a lot. That's a lot. Now, it also, I think, just going through that uh, that brief summary of the three, I think, major beats in the movie, uh, it it, it, do, it does well to diminish so much other stuff that goes on in this film. Oh, there's so much. Yeah, there's so many dynamics and things about uh, workplace dynamics and, yeah. and 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 fame and uh, you know uh, mm-hmm. and and gender roles. I mean, there's oh, it's so great. There's so much to talk about. Before we dig into the details, just a few quick notes. Make sure you join our online community and fellow movie lovers, and you can you if you know you can join in the the being the Ricardos uh, uh, love or bash whatever you'd like to do over on the True Story FM Discord server. You can join at thenextreel.com/discord. And if you like what we're doing here, why not become a supporting member? Visit thenextreel.com/member. Membership. Learn more about benefits, the members-only super-secret Discord channels, show live streams, merch, and so much more. Again, at thenextreel.com. Woohoo! This is, to me, ends up being very quickly a, a, a cultural essay that happens to revolve around Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz. Now, when you say cultural, it makes me think of the time. Do you mean it that way, mm-hmm. or do you mean culture? I do. 
generally. Okay. I do. But I also think that it is culture more writ large, specifically yes. when we're talking about relationships in the workplace, relationships and, you know, crashing headlong into professions. So the interpersonal sure. and personal dynamics that are right. going on between Lucy and Desi. But not only that, uh, gender roles, gender responsibilities in the works in the workplace, too, and how the film sometimes heavily leans on the perspectives of, you know, uh, representation in the workplace, ageism yeah. in the workplace, those sorts of things. How heavy handed did you feel like that hit you? Just right? A little too much? Well, see, so uh, the way that I viewed it, and 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 I think we want to talk about the structure a little bit when we get into it, but the way that I viewed it was that this moment in time, whether it's fully actual, historical, mm -hmm. or fictionalized for the purpose of telling this story, which I think that's what I want to talk about a little bit. The The moment in time that this film represents is this sort of progressive cusp where we can talk about all of those things and we can talk about how uh, it, 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 it is heavy handed in the way it's delivered, but it's meant to be so that we will consider the ramifications of what they're talking about in the, the, the gender roles in places of sitcoms and the the birth of you know new ideas and bringing new ideas to this to the small screen you know th this kind of thing it it, it is heavy-handed talking about pregnancy talking about the relationships of old doddering men with young attractive women on tv and these kind of things but it's it's there for a point so it doesn't bother me that it's heavy-handed because it's just one of the myriad of different issues that they're addressing in this entire entirely dramatic period of time again whether it's historical or not uh, for what was happening with this show you know what i think is so interesting about that and we i i have to take a step back to something like the social network which yeah. you know i when i first saw it i you know i've always enjoyed the movie but i didn't fall in love with the movie until later okay. um and part of it was because when i saw it i was so deeply embroiled in social media and the business of social media and the business sure. of these burgeoning network companies yeah and i found myself just sort of offended by how fictionalization was uh, uh, layered on top of, you know, the story for dramatic sure. purposes. And this is one of those things I think Michael Crichton was would call the wet streets ca cause rain uh, syndrome, right? It's that, that <laughs> whole idea that you're reading the newspaper and you're reading about something that you really know well, and you are able to critique the newspaper's impression of it. And you can say, oh, that's wrong. That's such bog that's bogus. That not that's not how it works. And right. then you turn the page and you read about something that's outside of your expertise. And you you suddenly, because it's in the newspaper, you think, oh, my God, that must be really true. It's a hardened um, truth. And yes, exactly. It, it, right, right. And so that is exactly what I was falling prey to. But what I didn't realize and what I think where I think some of the art and uh, and craft of Sorkin comes in first as a writer is that I think he makes smart choices about the things that he chooses to dramatize and the things that he chooses not to. And, uh, okay. you know, to, to take straight up. And I think that causes a movie like The Social Network to age better uh, because of the way those signals are amplified over time, distanced from, you know, the, the specifics, right? And, and it becomes a dramatic piece that speaks to the emotional resonance and feels, therefore, more important to me. Right. It's, it's, it's an artistic commentary rather than the idea of it being a, a news story. And that's, and, yeah. and that's something that Sorkin does. It, 
in a way with his dramatic history better than mm-hmm. than most right i mean yeah. It, it, yeah. in if you look at all of the films in his repertoire there's there's so many examples of this thing where it doesn't have to be exact because what he does to it makes it a better story and and yeah. through that through the social networks a great example and i think through this film too as we talk about it more we end up with a wonderful artistic commentary on so many of those issues that we may not be able to recognize in the moment you know when we're you talked about being sort of embroiled in social media we can't recognize those issues in the moment when we're participating but when we take take a step back and we look at it through the audience's eyes or through Sorkin's eyes, we can see a much deeper message that he's putting through in a very artistic way. Yeah, yeah. And I think I, I think for me, you look at the stories that I like the most of, of his Moneyball. I never need a distance because I don't live in the world of baseball sure. <laughs> building yeah. teams and that yeah. I just believed it from day one. And it became my favorite of, of his films. It's my uh, top one, too. So I'm right there. Yeah, with I mean, the, that's the thing, right? I, you know, Malice, I don't spend a lot of time in the OR, but my goodness, I did <laughs> enjoy my experience uh, with with that film. A Few Good Men, same thing. So sure. I, I think from his scripts i i feel like you know he's he, he settled science the guy for me is a is a damn good storyteller yep. and where i think we have had uh we, we've been able to witness a sort of learning curve is in is in him as a writer director right when he's working on um you know from molly's game trial of the chicago seven to being the ricardos yep. you i think are, are super bullish on molly's game right uh, I, not as much as this, no? to be honest. And that's, really? and that's the oh. thing. I, I liked Molly's game, it, it, but it wasn't, you know, it was kind of middle of the road for me. Whereas this, I, 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 I need to confess something in that when I went to watch this movie, I didn't know it was a Sorkin film. And I've watched it twice <gasps> now. I went back to watch it again to go for this. And, you know, when they pop up that final card in there and say written and directed by Sorkin, I'm like, oh, yes. You know, I mean, it was just, <laughs> I was so excited because I just thought there was all this witty banter and wonderful stuff through it. And then I was like, oh, of course. You know, it was did like a great think, reveal for me at the end doing, of the film. Yeah, somebody's doing a great Sorkin. <laughs> right. It, it, you know, I didn't even think that because, well, and we're going to get to the acting performances later, but I didn't even get to that because I was so entranced by what was happening, both from the story and from the dialogue, which is, you know, is something that we should we should celebrate in Sorkin. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. When the dialogue can, yeah. can sort of take on a life of its own. So that's great. For me, I, I look at these at the, at the first two in Molly's Game. I was a four star in Molly's Game and the same. Nice. On trial of Chicago Seven, and I think mm-hmm. I, I think Chicago Seven suffers probably the most of the three in terms of telling true stories, right. uh, just because it's so mired in uh, you know cultural history and politics, and you know we just know a lot about those people. And the and, fictionalizations there, you want to talk yeah. about heavily handed? I mean, they're yes. done on purpose. I mean, maybe they all are done on purpose, but it's it's so it's it's so directed at manipulation in in Chicago 7 that th- yeah. th- I didn't feel that way about this film at all. Right. And and that's a funny thing. When I look at this at Chicago 7, which is I think a whip-smart script with sure. a class A cast, I mean an unreal cast, mm-hmm. and yet it's still not quite living up to the sum of its parts. Chicago right. Seven, right? I I still walk away with a sense of, of of that kind of emptiness that we're talking about here. To me, being the Ricardos is so far peak Sorkin as writer director. I feel like this yep. is an example of a guy who has learned a lot of lessons, and he has been able to apply them judiciously behind the camera, just as he has the pen. And yes. and that's I think a real reason to celebrate. Well, that and I mean the 
watching it the second time and then knowing the things that I didn't know the first time, which there's more than just the Sorkin reveal for me, which we'll get into as well. But being able to kind of step back and watch what the camera is doing from a storytelling perspective, to watch the the interpretive things that they do to integrate flashback with um, with the story, to sort of take liberties with the way that the the reality is experienced. These are all very creative film ideas that you wouldn't see, I think, in those earlier Sorkin pieces. And this is something that I think is really a great way to, to watch this movie. It, you know, to get beyond that 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 first that first complaint that you heard, like I don't want to watch a movie about Lucille Ball. Well, it, this is a, a a strong film regardless of the subject matter, and I think it's it's worth it to watch. You know, even if you have a negative opinion about I Love Lucy, did you do you have an opinion of I Love Lucy? Yeah, it, absolutely not. That's the weird thing. Like I think I have a. I have a general respect for the show and what it meant to America. And I think they do a lot of time setting up the, the flashbacks to sort of build that with people who don't, right? In talking about um, the viewership and all these different aspects of the, of the show that made it such a cultural sort of touchstone when it, when it existed. I never felt that way. I, I, I recognize the sort of uh, the, the genius of physical comedy that Lucille Ball was, but it never really got me. I, I think of her more of as, as sort of a, a symbol of, of that time rather than mm-hmm. something that connects with me artistically. But watching this and seeing the sort of Sorkin's interpretation of the discrepancy between the character and the person, I think was wonderful and gave me so much more depth of respect for uh, for for the show and for and for the creative process that went into it. Uh, yeah, I think so too. And I did not. I'm I'm with you. I did not have a strong opinion of I Love Lucy. I've seen okay. a couple of episodes. But what is interesting about this experience is that my time with Nicole Kidman's version of Lucille Ball, and in mm-hmm. particular Javier Bardem's, uh, you know, time uh, as uh, Desi Arnaz. Yeah. Uh, I it, it, this is another thing where I'm at risk of recanonizing in my head who these people were. I mean, I felt so strongly about those performances. Um, well, so I agree that, with Nicole Kidman yeah. for sure, and I uh, yeah, I mean, but I and, not and, with Bardem. That's fascinating. Well, because he's such a well, and this is weird, but this is like a casting thing. Like he's he's such a physically different man to me than Desi Arnaz, and I think yeah. that was something that stuck with me throughout this film. They are. But he's perfect. I mean, he's a perfect cast for this. I, I, I don't, I don't dis- discount the cast, and I think he did a wonderful job in in delivering the character. It's just I always thought it was Javier Bardem playing that character, whereas I got a little bit lost in Nicole Kidman and 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 really sort of picturing the actual Lucille Ball delivering what she was delivering to us, especially when she was acting as Lucille Ball acting. In as Lucy uh, Lucy Ricardo, yeah, right. When Takes she your breath would, away. when she would get in the studio and she's doing the character, it is just so great. I mean, it is so it, it it's 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 a carbon copy. It's wonderful. It's so exciting to see that transformation there. You know, it's interesting you say it that way because I agree with you about Lucille Ball. It is a carbon copy, and I don't know that that is a universal good. For me, she is so Lucille, and I think what Nicole Kidman is able to to do there is that when um, you know when you see her on screen, it is the carbon copy. We need that, and when you see her off screen, it is a representation of what of what you know. Uh, a professional and fame famous woman is fighting for and against in the business uh, and that that dichotomy that duality is important 
to us. I think right. Bardem for me is uh, he. <laughs> I think he's the Desi I need to counter right. that that pairing of those two Lucys. And I don't think somebody because because Desi. The Desi we know on the show, we know wasn't the same kind of Desi. And I haven't seen a lot of, you know, behind the scenes footage of Desi Arnaz. I don't know who Desi sure. Arnaz yeah. was as a guy. The only Desi I know was, uh, uh, I guess, a slightly, um, his, his voice was slightly higher than uh, than the Desi we got on on Bar- from Bardem, he was he was it was a little bit he was wound a little bit tighter. He was like a tight spring, and Bardem <laughs> yes. is like a blunt instrument. You know what Definitely. I mean? Like yes. I, he's such a giant personality. But I needed that level of Desi to counter the size of Lucille Ball's character that Nicole brought to the. I hundred percent agree with that, and 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 it works. It works on screen. Yeah. I don't think anyone else. Well, I mean, I'm I'm stuck in the in the mode of what I just saw, but I can't imagine anyone else playing that role. I think that their performances are what it, it immediately stand. I mean, what I know they're nominated for right now is the SAG Awards, right? And I mm-hmm. think that's immediately what stands out as it, this. It's a perfectly acted film yeah. in in that regard. It is. It's an actor's. Uh, it's an actor's movie. I think yep. for for that, and that doesn't that doesn't uh, take any of the spotlight away from Nina Arianda and, and uh, as Vivian Vance and J.K. Simmons mm-hmm. as as uh, Bill Frawley, which I think wow, were also terrific, just yes. terrific. But I I think the their relationship, right, their little sort of sub relationship within this movie is all uh, about you know uh, casting for for part and um and and dealing with just sort of ageism and perspective and the fact that you know Vivian reportedly detested working with Frawley because he was as old as her grandfather and uh, just never felt like a real relationship. It was just yeah, for the she, comedy and never. So she always detested working with him is what you're saying. Or yeah. she never. Yeah. Did. That's what I am. Yeah. That's what I, is that what I said? No, that's not what I said. I well, said I thought it you wrong. Said she never you detested right. it, but yeah, she I think always she always it. did because it, it yeah. was such a ridiculous pairing. <laughs> yes. It was a ridiculous pairing. It was a slapstick pairing, a vaudeville right. pairing, but, and yet it's a good way when JK Simmons at the end of the movie comes in, and is standing on the uh, in that the back lot right in the back of that mm-hmm. set on the yeah. street set. The three women are sitting on a bench: Nicole Kidman and um, uh, Alia Shawkat and Nina Arianda, mm-hmm. and they he, they are uh, uh, such a perfect picture for me of all of the the struggles that these women have had to deal with again writ large. And right. he says. J.K. Simmons, there's something that dies the first time a woman tells you he's old. And that was that was just crushing. It was just a crushing line from this character, from that actor, um, uh, from this sort of this sort of set of competing uh, perspectives that I bring as an audience member, as an audience member who still sees myself as 22 years old, and yet my beard is getting whiter by the day. Right. Um, like all of that was wrapped up in what what this 
relationship, the the Simmons and Arianda relationship. Well, did then, for and me you on you flip the mirror on that because I agree with you totally. But that's one of the the beauties of this film is that it 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 accounts for everyone's perspective, right? Because you have the scene with Ethel and 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 Lucy having the confrontation about the 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 breakfast being sent to her and she you know is ethel is is saying this sort of like you can't handle anyone looking better than you all these things and then lucy turns around and says you know america wants to see someone like them you look like everyone there you know it's yeah. it's all these perspectives are represented and all of them are accurate right the all these mm-hmm. issues are, are all these points are valid in discussing all of these issues, and I think that's something that's really, really great about this film, and, the, and and that nothing, nothing feels superfluous. Everything is is relevant to telling the story, and I think that is so 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 wonderful about the script. Yeah, yeah, I I th- I just thought that was a really special thing, and and um, uh, I, I thought that was that was well portrayed as well. Another thing that I bought into that was <laughs> that I shouldn't have in the first watch. I mean, I know who Linda Levin is. I, I I think I actually know who Ronnie Cox is as well. But I was so reading the newspaper and and buying that that metaphor that you talked about before. You know, buying what I was being sold. That when I saw the flashback representations played by these actors, I just believed it was real flashback. I didn't. It, it, it wasn't oh. until going later on that I realized, oh, that's meant to be told for the story i totally bought the whole thing i was i was with <laughs> the vehicle of telling the story you know, and, and i know who these that people would are. have been incredibly artful that would have yeah, been super artful if right? that's what they had intended yeah 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 i mean oh it's documentary style like all this thing and then i get back and of course i mean now you know watching it the second time i'm like yes this is all scripted of course like yeah. yes but i i was i was hook line and sinker the first time i watched it, oh, it was I'm wonderful so, i'm so glad you were i i struggled a little a little bit when ronnie cox showed up because sure. ronnie cox is is somebody i know probably the most yeah um, well that, i know linda levin more but all those faces i know those faces but for me you know i was like i, yeah. I kind of know those faces maybe they are these people from old hollywood <laughs> yeah, maybe was, they then became actors it was silly and, and stupid for me but yeah that's where i was on it yeah well, I, I, I think that was the thing that I that sort of shook me, that that flashback uh, architecture. I liked it. I thought Linda Lavins was the best. Yeah, um, she, was she, was, she was just fantastic. But I also loved Alia Shawkat. I think she's fantastic. And I have a recurring dream okay. in which Alia Shawkat is like an MC to my dreams. And, <laughs> oh, that's and she's like, it's like not a weird dream. It's just like she literally shows up and she's like, and now we're going to turn to, you know, camera two. And she that and then there's a scene that's a dream. It's very very strange, but she I has been a part that. of my dreamscape for years. She's years. in the control booth. I'm all about yeah, it. She's in the control booth. Yeah. Oh, she's, she that's runs great. She, she runs my psyche. <laughs> that's weird. So glad I just talked about that on the show. Pete Wright, inside uh, out. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> another transformative perspective here, though, is uh, is uh, uh, Tony Hale. Uh, okay. And, you know, Tony Hale, the, the whole arrested defe- development uh, connection with Alia Shawkat and now Tony Hale, um, I uh, you know, you you see an actor for the first time playing a part that is so wildly out of human context as mm-hmm. the part Tony Hale played on Arrested Development. Are you a, uh, an Arrested De- Development fan? I am not. At all? Okay. He played a very, uh, very strange and uh, not altogether well um, uh, family member and... 
Um, okay. You just get a sense that, um, I mean, it's super affected, super affected performance. Very, very funny as Buster Bluth um, loses a hand, has weird attachment for a hand for a, a long time. I mean, he's just mm-hmm. really a, a damaged a, a slapstick character. And then he shows up and he plays this. And I think that is another one of those transformative performances. This is a, this is one of those performances that gives you a, a sense of range on a very big scale. Yeah. He has he, done a lot of other great comedy, comedy uh, bits, but here we have a chance to see him doing something new. And he has a bit of an arc. I mean, even it, it, like yeah. you have both the old version of him and, and then the young, but he, what he goes through as the executive producer through it, it's just, it's really, really special to watch it go through. Yeah. 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 And I, and I, I, can't forget i uh, veep he's he plays uh, gary walsh walsh or played gary walsh on veep uh, okay. as well with uh, julie louis dreyfus so um it, but you're right he has he has an arc i think it was a well-written character i i love the writers and i i love mm-hmm. that the writers become our anchor for so much of the culture war that's going on uh in uh, really in both sort of timelines they are the anchor to the flashbacks uh, as the architects of history, so to speak, and they also we get to see them actually being the architects of history in in their writing of the show, and the fact that they didn't believe that they could pull off what Desi Arnaz was asking them to pull off in terms right. of actually showing motherhood right. on TV, I thought that was really special. Yeah, well, and and I mean. You you think about their roles in the hierarchy of what's going on in that show. I mean, and they actually, you know, they state it in the script a couple of times. You know, this is a, a show that's put on by Desilu Productions and the president of Desilu is who's speaking to you right now. You know, all this thing yeah. and yeah. that writer's room section where they introduce the pregnancy to the writers and talk mm-hmm. about this, the stomping grape scene. And then we project into what the stomping grape scene can be. That is by far my favorite part of this entire movie because it jumps forward and back and into fiction and into the show. And it is on the cusp of progress and all these things. It is so wonderfully executed, both in dialogue and in story and in, in visual representation, too. It is it is it is fantastic. And, and, and that's something that's really special to see in this movie. What do you think of their use and tour of set. I wonder if we are particularly uh, attuned to movies like this because we just love hanging out in big studios. Is that possible? <laughs> Is that possible? It's our bias. Well, I mean, yeah. You mean you and me, or or the public in general? Oh yeah, yeah. I'm going to say you and me. I'm gonna, yeah, am I speaking well, out of turn for you? I love no, hanging out. I, in I agree TV with studios. that too. I mean, it feels like home a bit right to to see that yeah. and to see that represented that way and then it you know th- the way that sorkin writes it because i think it's home for him too is this really sort of uh that heartwarming thing of you know come here and and this is the place where we make the magic right mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. and 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 i you know take some pride in in being a part of that too I mean, it's the same reason I love Studio 60 on the Sunset Strip, right? It's 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 sure. a behind the scenes behind the scenes tour of the experience of of these people, and that I I feel again a, a real kinship to. But take that and and pair it with Jeff Cronin with uh, a camera, and mm-hmm. I think his his use of camera in in living in this space with people, in pairing it with the demands of an Aaron Sorkin script, I think was was really special. So that, yeah. What do you, how, what do you love about the camera? 
Oh, so much. Uh, and I, and I didn't really see it until the second showing because I was so affected by the story the first time. So when I watched it the second time, I really witnessed the storytelling that the camera shows up and tells us. I, I especially like the intro where we are first introduced to, uh, Lucy and Desi, and we never see them on screen until they are shocked by Walter Winchell announcing the big announcement that we've that we've been led to by the flashbacks by the by the mm-hmm. you know the the fake documentary style thing i think that's super smart and the way the camera roams through that whole scene of their discussion and their confrontation and and thing it's just it it's telling a story and then it shocks us into in, in, into introducing them it it's bookended really well with the not the complete end of the film but the end of the uh the the show part of the of the film where we get lucy and then pulling back and seeing the black and white and put on screen there's so many tips and tricks that you come up from the camera here that are really special and really add to the 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 specialness of this film as a whole what do you think about uh giving j edgar hoover the savior role <laughs> I thought of Tim Curry, J. Edgar Hoover from from Clue. Um, Absolutely, but, uh, <laughs> I, it's it's always amazing to me. And this goes to the point of not really being rooted in that part of history, right? That being before our time, that um, that he was such a name as the it, he was the the leader of the FBI, right? I, I don't want to get that wrong. That was his. Yes, he was the yeah, FBI director. Director. Right. But he's so yeah. like throughout culture, everyone's talking about J. Edgar Hoover. And the fact that this is part of that, too, you know, whether it's true or, or part of the fictionalization, I think is just it, it's very indicative of all the period pieces that I watch regarding that period of time. He was. And I think I'm with you. Like to me, I, I think uh, J. Edgar, you, I hear J. Edgar and I see Leonardo DiCaprio. Right. Oh. Like. Did you okay. see the movie J Edgar? No. You need to you need to see that that movie. All right. I think. I think. I, I mean if you if you're into that movie, it barely uh crests the 6-star rating. It is the story of J Edgar Hoover uh and look it's a big sprawling thing, uh but yeah. it does in fact star uh Leonardo and Army Hammer and Naomi Watts and well, I like all and, those people. Um yeah, I mean all all good people. Right. Exactly. Uh, so it, it'd be interesting to see what you thought. But for me, Leonardo's performance there has sort of, again, recanonized who J. Edgar Hoover, J. Edgar Hoover is. Sure. And it, it's, it is because I was not a part of this, this period of, of our history and, and only glancingly a student of it. And so I didn't have the baggage of hearing, I, and, and I know he is a controversial figure. Hugely. For good reason. Lots of lots of reasons. Yeah, exactly. But I think this is this is the important takeaway for me. I was not tied up enough in all of those important and controversial reasons that we don't like J. Edgar at this point to let that get in the way of the fact that his voice, the character voice in this movie, re, uh, uh, you know, repaired so much for this narrative. That was okay for me. I understand how that's a divisive thing for for you know people who are more of a student of this time of history who of of these people than I was. But for me, it fit with the story, and I needed that resolution. I needed at that point a little bit of a happy ending for uh, for Lucy. 
Yeah, and that was very, very moving for me. That whole section. Um, yeah. Uh, well, and it's meant to be, right? That's the. Uh, I guess that's the emotional climax of the film, and it really hit me hard. I think to speak to your point about the the accent or the or the delivery there, I think if for that minor piece that's not anything that would ever stick in my craw about the performance i think if we had that sort of difficulty with either desi or lucy i think that would be much more much more something that would that would get to me one thing that i wanted to mention about nicole kidman in this role is that it reminded me of uh kate planchette in the aviator and when she's playing i think she's playing Catherine hepburn is that right um yeah and it it's the kind of thing where both these women have such amazing careers. I would never want to say that, you know, this is a defining role for Nicole Kidman and not that for Kate Planchette either. But in both these cases, um, when I have seen these women play these roles, it is such a, an immense amount of respect that I have for what they do and their craft that they can transform in this way. And Kate Planchette did it for me in that movie. And in this movie, I was just, I was completely sold. She, she did the Lucy, the, the exact Lucy, whether it's exact to who she, to who Lucy was, it was close enough for me to recanonize it like you're talking about this is yeah. this is now how i'm going to remember lucille ball and that i think is a is a, a tribute to how well nicole kidman uh, delivers this role in this movie that whole thing could be comical if you're not in if you're not in it like i was right you could sure. see this like this crazy paranoid uh you know would-be dictator jay edgar being the saving grace of lucille ball and this cuban who has just given us this incredible speech about, uh, you know, what he was running from, the communists in, on yeah. his home island and getting here, which I thought was very powerful. When you wrap all that up in a bow, it's a mess. It is yep. a mess. But I think, to me, that is the, uh, that's the beauty of that sequence, that I can still feel good about what I have just seen, that that's an end that feels somehow earned as a result of what Sorkin was able to do, both in word and in the frame. Well, I agree. And it's still rewarding to me. And the thing, you know, all of the negatives surrounding anyone's perception or the sort of the legacy of J. Edgar Hoover, I think if you put it in the context of the time and you balance it with what's going on with the McCarthy hearings and who McCarthy was and that side of the world and and who J. Edgar represented, I think... It's the perfect person to sort of bring in the perfect name. We shouldn't even say person. The perfect name to bring in to this part of the the film to be the savior here. And then what an energy roller coaster to go through that sort of immensely positive tear jerking moment of success to then go to the infidelity confrontation and the way yeah. that that's delivered. And that's so expert, like the way the through line goes through the film of how, you know, Lucy has to, has to sort of balance all of this stress with the, the simple thing that, that she knows is deteriorating in her home life at the same time. It's just such a, it, it's so intense. And that whole sequence, I was just, I was, I was broken. I was broken in all different kinds of directions because of how I was taken emotionally through that section. Yeah. What does that leave you with? And I, I, you know, a little bit more specifically on, on how, because I, I know the history of their relationship is that, yeah. you know, it, it didn't end up working out. Right. Right. Uh, but it is an interesting choice to leave us on, uh, on their 
you know, that discovery of the infidelity, especially because that has been that's it's essentially the punchline to a very sad joke that's been set up from frame one, right? From that wonderful yep. scene uh, in the beginning that you've already talked about. I feel like um, I, I feel like it was a good choice. It didn't bring me down too much, especially because that's a bit of the history that I already knew. Um, a lot of ways to handle the dissolution of their relationship. This one felt okay. Yeah, well, it felt appropriate. I mean, it 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 definitely is consistent with the way that, that the story was told. And I think it, it, it when I say an energy roller coaster, I think uh, I think Sorkin meant it. I think Sorkin wanted you to feel all of the jumble that he brought to this story, whether or not that's that's the real way it happened. And I think it all of that intensity sets us up so wonderfully and i mean both the positive intensity for the 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 telephone call moment to the the infidelity confrontation to the 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 single time that lucy forgot her lines you know and gets lost in talking about lucy yeah. i'm home I, I, it's just so wonderfully written from beginning to end when they talk about how lucy was always looking to have a home that that was her ambition i just i, I think that that aspect finding authenticity finding an expectation that can actually be fulfilled and 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 really how difficult that is as as human beings in navigating you know fame relationships all these things i think it's just it's for me it was kind of expertly told i needed the weight of that moment both the positive and the negative to get the message of the futility of what they're trying to experience uh in in that sort of final scene i thought it i thought it was great uh, there uh, was recently a, a wonderful you know sort of investigation not an investigation profile of um lucy by way of of the kids and okay oh and um, did you notice uh, that they were both the executive producers of this by the way yeah as well yeah i did Love which that. is which is also telling about you know what kind of a story were they you know were they trying to tell and did they did they want out there and i think one of the things that i liked so much about it was that they were i i think they did a fine job of talking about how up and down their relationship was they did remarry but the way the kids talk about their relationship is that they deeply loved each other desi mm -hmm. and lucy even through other relationships that they had, that the that uh, particularly uh, Lucy Jr. Lucy I.E. Uh, yeah. she says her parents were the soulmates to one another, even though they married other people. Interesting. And I thought that was a really interesting way to put it. They couldn't yeah. they couldn't live without each other, and yet they also couldn't live with each other. And I think that roller coaster right. is is depicted well in in the film and yes. and uh, I, I liked that I liked that they were just like they couldn't get enough of each other couldn't get their hands off of each other in the office like right. more of that that yes. was great yep and 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 what I would the, the one of the things that that our friend Tommy Hansom has, has told me about these kind of stories that I think is really good is that it feels tough but real and that's yeah. uh, that feels really earned in this movie as well we are on Letterboxd, True Story FM's family of film podcasts. They're all part of the Next Reels HQ page. Letterboxd is a great way to track the movies you see, to write your own reviews, be a part of the larger, larger community of film lovers like yourself. It really is the best social network for movie lovers. You can sign up for your own account today. And if you choose to remove ads and support the Letterboxd team, you can upgrade to a pro or patron account. Use the discount code NEXTREAL at checkout. You'll save 20% off. It works for renewals as well. 
you already started by saying this is at the very top of your list of, uh, you know, of, of Sorkin's stuff. Do yep. you do you consider all the stuff he's written or just of the stuff that he's written and directed? I assume of the three that he's written and directed, this is your favorite. Yes, it is. And I and I was considering all of them. I went back and looked. I I can't say I like it more than Moneyball. Moneyball's kind of a, a, a has a special place in my heart. Uh, and actually, on on rewatch, I've found all all new kinds of things about Moneyball that I like. Um, so it, this is kind of number two for me there. But um, ultimately, yeah, it's the best that he's written and directed for me. I initially. On initial watch of this, I thought it was a four star. And then going back and just really sort of examining it, uh, it, it, it's even moved up to a four and a half for me. It's, it's, it's a very strong movie and it's, it's worth it for all different kinds of reasons. Not just, not just for the I Love Lucy story, not just for those details, but for, for Sorkin, for, for general filmmaking. I think it's going to get more awards too, or at least nominations. We'll see, we'll see what wins. But uh, when I think back to the pandemic here, I think this is one of the best movies that I've seen throughout the pandemic. This is, it was definitely a, a something that I didn't expect and it's, and it really blew me away. And so I think that if people are looking for quality, this is a really strong movie. So it's 4.5 and a heart for me. Well, you and I are kindred spirits. That's why we're here. It's 4.5 and a heart for me, too. I really enjoyed it. And uh, I, 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 I watched the movie twice. I, I saw it by myself, and then I watched it again with my mom. <laughs> and nice. uh, uh, mom was also, she that was her. She said, I don't want to watch a Lucille Ball movie. I said, no, I think you need to watch this movie. She loved it. Loved Good. it. Good. Completely. You know. It, it's mom. She's kind of a soft audience, but uh, <laughs> but she did. She loved it, uh, and I, I took it as a great watch the second time too. So um, I I think it's great. I hope I hope that you listen to us talk about this this movie, fair people, and you you give it a chance if you haven't seen it, and maybe give it an optimistic chance. It you know it it could be really great if if you want to see a, a great movie. You can also find lots of ways to twist it if you want that. Too. It's on Amazon so. Prime. So, you know, most of you folks have an Amazon Prime account yeah. and you can just watch it for free and for fun. And it uh, will be all of those things, fun and free. It feels it feels a little bit buried on Amazon Prime to me right it now. Does. Amazon Prime is never the first place that I go to watch something. And that that may be it, unless Miss Maisel is on is, is current time. <laughs> I'm not really watching Amazon Prime. So Solid. it is a little bit buried. Uh, check out. Uh, check out. Being the. Ricardo's. Uh, that's it. What do you have going on? Are you doing anything? I know you guys are, are gearing up for a new season. We are hard at work on the new sort of look and feel of Trailer Rewind. We're, we've had a wonderful run with that show, and we have, you know, talked about so many different wonderful, you know, we talk about this being a diamond rough in the rough on, on streaming. It might be hard to find. That's what Trailer Rewind has always been about, is finding those, those kind of hidden movies that people might have missed when they were in wide release that are now streaming and ways to get out. We're talking about a new look and feel to get that out to people and, and kind of still share some of those special movies. We want to be the recommend, recommenders for people that are looking for special movies on streaming services. I love it. I love it. And we are, uh, Andy and I over on the, the main show, we're doing, uh, we're in the middle of our journalist series. Fun. And that's going to lead us right into our John Hurd series. The crossover is Between the Lines. Have you ever seen Between the Lines? No. What's that all yeah. about? Uh, it is a, I, I think you're going to really like it. And I think okay. you should probably try to track it down because it is the story of a ragtag uh, alt newspaper okay. in Boston in the 70s. And they are about to be bought by a big conglomerate. And it is the journey of, of navigating 
uh, big business and small media. 1992? And, uh, no. This is that's a different no, one. No, 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 no. It's no, no. it's, uh, it's going to be a different one. It's That's with, a British uh, police John Hurd and Jill Jill uh, uh Eikenberry 77. 77 gotcha. directed by Joan Micklin Silver and I think Joan Mick this is my first Joan Micklin Silver movie. I think you will love her work too. She's just fantastic. I want to see all of them now. Cool. I'll check it out. So, that is it. Thank you, everybody, for hanging out, for downloading, for listening to JJ and I with this uh, wonderful, um, uh, you know, uh, island episode of JJ and I celebrating our love (laughs) for Sorkin stories and specifically being the Ricardos. Don't forget to do the stuff you're supposed to do with your podcast. Rate, review, subscribe, and then, of course, listen. Perhaps most importantly, please share. Let any of those movie lovers in your life know about this show the best way we have to get more people listening to this show is you. Thanks, everybody. Here on the Film Board, we have covered quite a variety of great page-to-screen adaptations over the years, from superheroes like Christopher Nolan's The Dark Knight Rises, based on stories like Nightfall and The Dark Knight Returns, to horror and sci-fi like Max Brooks's World War Z and Hiroshi Sakazuraka's All You Need Is Kill, which became one of our favorites, Edge of Tomorrow, with Tom Cruise and Emily Blunt. And who could forget Andy Weir's stranded astronaut adventure, The Martian, or Dave Eggers' tech thriller, The Circle? Supposedly so much better than the movie. We've also explored Stephen King epics like The Dark Tower and It, biopics like Damien Chazelle's First Man, and sweeping sagas like Denis Villeneuve's take on Frank Herbert's Dune. And don't forget Martin Scorsese's Killers of the Flower Moon, based on David Grant's nonfiction book about the 1920s murders of the Osage Nation. I just finished the book, and it's fantastic. It's always fascinating to look at the source material, and we often do as the book lovers we are. For those of you out there who love to do the same, head to thenextreel.com slash originals to find all of our past episodes and dive deeper into these adapted stories. And it's not just stories. We've included things like the video games Uncharted and Detective Pikachu. That's right. Thenextreel.com slash originals is your one-stop shop for in-depth looks at the sources for cinematic adaptations that we have discussed. Every purchase you make supports the film board and The Next Reel's family of shows. So what are you waiting for? Head to thenextreel.com slash originals and get your next read today. (laughs) 